You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. I'll keep this simple. I'm not an expert, but I know this is bad. No matter where you are in Western Canada right now, it is very hard to escape the heat. An unusually strong ridge of high pressure bubbled up over the province on Friday, creating a heat dome. And that dome is trapping air that is hot and oppressive. Now, Canada has reached its highest recorded temperature. Part of British Columbia reached 46.6 degrees Celsius yesterday. Health officials did announce that right now the health risks associated with the heat wave outweigh those associated with COVID-19. Whenever we see weather anomalies like this, the first question we ask is usually about climate change. And it's a simple one. Did we cause this? The answer is never quite as simple, but it's also usually at least partially, yes, we did. On the other side of that equation, though, people who believe in human-made climate change are quick to ridicule folks who discount that because it gets cold in the winter. So the obvious question is, are we doing the same thing because of a few unprecedented days of summertime heat? Does the same theory that weather is not climate apply to the scary records that we're seeing set all across the West Coast? What is a heat dome anyway? And not to sound stupid, but how does it work? And more critically, is this something we need to plan for as part of our summers now? as the world warms up. If it is, what should Canadians, and more importantly, the cities they live in and the governments they vote for, be doing to adapt to it? Is this incredible spike in temperature, the wake-up call that we've been expecting? Or did we miss the wake-up call? And this is the sign that now it's too late. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Catherine Hayhoe is a renowned Canadian climate scientist. She's also the author of the upcoming Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. The new book comes out on September 21st, but Catherine Hayhoe joins us today. Hey, Catherine. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And maybe before we get into uh, the discussion around climate change and long-term trends... Just as a weather phenomenon, can you explain what's happening in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest right now? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's not like we haven't known for years and even decades that climate change would make our heat extremes even stronger. But when you see it with your own eyes in a place where you might live or people you know live— It is just a whole other level of shocking. We often think of climate change as a distant issue that will affect only future generations or people who live far away. But today we know it is here, it is now, and it is affecting us and our families and our friends and our loved ones in places that matter to every single one of us. The way I think about it is climate change is loading the weather dice against us. So we always have a chance of rolling a double six, a heat wave, a flood, a wildfire, a storm. But as the world warms decade by decade, and of course, Canada is warming twice as fast as the global average, Mm -hmm. it's as if that warming is sort of sneaking in and taking some of those numbers on our dice and replacing some of those sixes with sevens. And that's what we're seeing today. So what exactly is um, a heat dome, which is what I've heard this phenomenon called so often the past week? A heat dome is a colloquial term for what we atmospheric scientists call a high-pressure system. 
And a high pressure system is usually kind of circular, so it sort of looks like a dome. And it sits over an area. And what it does is it sort of traps the the air and the heat there, and it suppresses convection, which is what leads to precipitation in hot weather. So not only is it hot, it's dry. And the drier it gets, the hotter it gets. The hotter it gets, the drier it gets. It is a vicious feedback cycle. How bad has it gotten over the past few days uh, in these areas? We've sort of heard some reports of of like all-time high temperatures in Canada. Oh, yes. Well, we broke the record with 46.6 degrees, and then I think we broke it again with 47 degrees Celsius. I mean, those are not numbers that you associate with Canada. As Dave Phillips, who's been one of the top meteorologists at Environment Canada for years and even decades, as Dave said, he says, it doesn't even feel like Canada. This doesn't sound like Canada. Were you expecting, and I don't mean like expecting as in this week or this month or whatever, but is this something climate scientists have been expecting for a while now to see these kind of rapid jumps? Well, we have already known through tracking temperature over years, decades, and even centuries, we know that Canada is already breaking hot hot month records three times more frequently than we're breaking cold month records. So it's it's three times more likely to have a record-breaking hot month in Canada today than it was, you know, 100 years ago. We also know that we're breaking a lot more individual heat records in Canada than cold temperature records. And these are the statistics that have been changing gradually decade by decade. So we know that we're getting more high temperature extremes. But when we see these massive outliers that break all of our national records anywhere, anytime, as far as any thermometers have ever measured across Canada... That can't help but be shocking to all of us as humans because this is where we live. This is our country. This is, these are our lives that are being affected by these records. I'm glad you mentioned cold temperatures as well because I wanted to ask about that. I know when it gets really, really cold in the winter here um, or anywhere for that matter, you kind of hear people saying, oh, you know, well, how can it be global warming if it's so freezing cold? And, and our response to them is often that weather is different from climate. Um, and I guess I just want to poke a little bit on the opposite end here and say, you know, is this unprecedented heat wave due only to climate change? Or is this, you know, a mixture of like, this is just weather too. It's an unexpected heat spell. Well, it's always both. And in fact, it's cold outside. Where's global warming now? Is such a common question that I actually made a global weirding episode specifically about that. I have a little YouTube series I do with PBS called uh, Global Weirding. And one of them is about how do I know it's getting warmer when it's cold outside? But what we have is we have our natural weather patterns with climate change on top of them. So we have our natural weather dice that have ones and twos on them, as well as fives and sixes, right? So we always have a chance of rolling those double ones or double twos, which could be the cold temperatures, but we're getting more and more sixes and even some sevens on our dice. So it's like climate change is loading the natural weather dice against us. People often ask, well, was this heat wave climate change or was that hurricane climate change? And I say, that's not the right question. Because we know we've always had heat waves and hurricanes, storms and floods, wildfires, droughts, and more. We know that they've existed, you know, as long as there have been humans on this planet and even before that. But what's happening is climate change is exacerbating them, making them worse. So the correct question now is, how much worse did climate change make this event? We haven't crunched the numbers yet for this heat wave, but for past heat waves, like I don't know if you remember, a year ago last June in Siberia, it was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Siberia. 
And scientists calculated that that heat wave was made 600 times more likely because of human-caused climate change loading the weather dice against us. The Big Story will be back in just a minute. I'm interested in um, the way we talk about extreme heat as a weather phenomenon. You know, somebody told me the other day that they call it the silent killer because it doesn't tend to get the press uh, that the hurricanes and uh, things like that do. How bad is this kind of heat for, I mean, civilization in general, I guess? Unfortunately, that is absolutely true. The people who suffer the most from the extreme heat are people who already have respiratory problems or heart problems, often the very young or the very old, people who are already ill, and often people who cannot afford to pay their air conditioning bill or insulate their home, or they might even live in an area where they're worried about opening their window at night because of security issues. Mm. But because when when you get sick from, or heaven forbid, even die from heat-related illnesses, you die quietly in your bed. Right. It's not, you know, out somewhere where you've been hit by a tree or your house has been flooded or something like that. And so because of that, we're often unaware of these risks. But the 2003 European heat wave, it's hard to remember, but back that far, but almost 20 years ago, they had a massive heat wave across Northern Europe that scientists calculated was twice as likely because of climate change impacts. It was over 18 degrees Celsius warmer than it should be in some places in France and Spain. And when they added up all of the numbers, it turns out that that heat wave was responsible for 70,000 premature deaths that single heat wave that's nuts and and i'm sure we're going to see you know not comparable numbers but we're already seeing reports um of people being found unresponsive uh in british columbia right now and and what i wanted to ask is you know if heat waves are getting hotter because of climate change what should places like BC be doing? You know, it's one thing for a heat wave to go from 105 to 115 in a place like Texas that deals with extreme heat. Mm-hmm. It's another thing in a province like BC that we think of as totally temperate and mild. Completely. So, you know, I grew up in Toronto and our house didn't have air conditioning. When it was hot enough a few days a year that you couldn't really sleep, we would just sleep down the basement. Mm -hmm. And so now my parents have air conditioning. But of course, if we get our electricity from fossil fuels, that's just contributing to the problem. Right. So in places where it routinely gets over, you know, 45 degrees Celsius in the summer, people are prepared and they know how to handle it. Their infrastructure is prepared. Their homes are prepared. They understand not to, you know, work outside in the middle of the day. But for those of us who are not prepared for that, we are even more vulnerable. So that's a lot of the work I do working with cities. I look at how we can be changing our building codes, how we can change our infrastructure design and maintenance so that our our pavement literally won't melt if it gets too hot, or the the rails on our rapid transit line won't warp, so we have to shut down public transit during a heat wave. These are things that literally already happen. And we have to prepare for changing the way that we build, the way that we maintain our infrastructure, the way that we even live our lives. There was a report about a year or two ago about Phoenix, Arizona, how it's getting so hot in the summer that people are just shifting their outdoor recreation to nighttime. Hmm. One of my colleagues, a fellow scientist called uh, Joellen Russell, she's in Arizona and she told me how the other day she had to wake her children up at 5 a.m. so they could go play outside before it got too hot. Man. So 
We have to change the way we live and the way we prepare, but we have to reduce our carbon emissions as much as possible, as soon as possible, because that is the only way that we are going to be able to adapt to the impacts of a changing climate, as the report that just came out yesterday explains. I was just about to ask you about that. This is a Natural Resources Canada report, right? And it looks at like the big issues impacting Canada. Can you kind of outline it? I know it's a very complicated report. Absolutely. So it is called Canada's National Issues Report, and it follows up on Canada's changing climate that came out two years ago. And it speaks to how climate change is affecting us in the places where we live. I have a short Twitter thread on it if anybody wants more. But in a nutshell, it explains how everything, our infrastructure, our health, our well-being, our water, our forests, our ecosystems, our economy, and even our trade and immigration and and uh, international relations, every aspect of our lives is being affected by a changing climate today, and we need to prepare to build resilience and adapt to the impacts we can no longer avoid because some of them are already here today. But we also have to reduce our emissions as much as possible as soon as possible because if we continue on our current pathway, depending on fossil fuels, I actually look at this myself. This is the research I do. We are going to reach situations that are completely unadaptable, Hmm. that we will not be able to prepare for, that our water systems, our ecosystems, our economy, our health, our infrastructure will not be able to cope with those impacts. And so as John Holdren, who was the U.S. President Obama's former science advisor, said, he said, we have three choices. We can reduce our emissions, we can prepare and, and adapt, or we can suffer. And he said, we're going to do some of each. The only question is how much? Because the faster we reduce our carbon emissions, the less adaptation is required and the less suffering there will be. I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the reasons that we like to talk to you about this stuff is because you managed to bring a perspective that's serious, but also uh, optimistic in terms of our ability to tackle this. And one of the things I've seen a lot this week with regards to the temperatures out West is, you know, the idea that one day we'll wake up and all of a sudden it'll be too late and we'll have missed our chance and we're locked into just devastating impacts. And and a lot of people have been saying, you know, this is that day. And I guess my question for you is, is, is it and how much time do we have if it's not? Well, as the IPCC's one and a half degree report made very clear, it came out two years ago, every gigaton of carbon counts. So every additional gigaton we produce carries with it a cost. It's almost as if you, you know, you've been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for weeks, years, and even decades. There is some cost. There's some damage that's already occurred. But we know, to carry that further, you know, you might have some spots on your lungs. You might have some difficulty breathing. But you don't have emphysema. You don't have lung cancer. And you're not dead yet. Hmm. So what does that mean? It means there is still time to act. When's the best time? As soon as possible. How much can we avoid? As much as we can. So there still is the ability to avoid the worst of the impacts. But every month, every year that goes by without serious action means that we lock in an additional amount of suffering. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is what comes next. And first, I guess, with respect to the weather itself— Do these kind of temperatures and their impact out West um, encourage 
a, a cycle that leads to more and more of this kind of weather, uh, or are these more one-off events? Well, what we're worried about right now is that this extreme heat is going to dry out the vegetation and dry out the soil, which provides conditions such that when wildfires start, which they do typically through accidental human ignition or through lightning, they can burn a lot greater area because the vegetation in the soil is so dry. So that's what we're worried about right now in terms of following on this exceptional heat wave so early in the season. But moving forward over the rest of the summer and next year, the year after, we still have some ones and twos on our dice. So we can still get some cool temperatures and then there'll still be people who say, oh, where's global warming now? Mm -hmm. But we have to realize that we get hot and cold, we get wet and dry. That's just part of our naturally occurring weather on this planet. But over all of that, we have a changing climate that is steadily pushing our temperatures up and up and up. And it's also increasing the intensity of our droughts. It's making our heavy precipitation stronger and more frequent. It's causing sea level to rise, putting our coastlines at risk. And, of course, it's also causing the Arctic to thaw. So decade by decade by decade, we see our temperature ticking steadily upwards. And again, the time to take action is now. My last question on that, uh, and it's it's kind of for you professionally, is in terms of this being a wake-up call, in terms of us realizing that the time to take action is now again, um, have you seen any difference in terms of the impact this event is having uh, to wake people up. Are you getting more requests? Are you seeing more politicians talking about it? Are you seeing a rise in general awareness? Because this one does seem shocking, and maybe that's just to Canadians because of the temperature records being set here. Well, I think it's shocking to us as Canadians, but it's certainly shocking to people in Portland and Seattle and the West Coast of the United States, what they're experiencing as well. Right. And I can answer your question because together with a few of my colleagues at Yale University, we actually looked at over 20 years of extreme weather data and 20 years of public opinion on climate change. Hmm. Our study just came out earlier this year. And what we found is that hot, dry days exceptionally hot, dry days, are the only type of extreme weather that leads to long-term changes in people's opinions in the places where that happens as to whether climate change is going to affect them and whether climate action is needed. That's fascinating. Why is that? Um, I think it's because for so long it was called global warming. So people just sort of associate hot and dry with global warming and they're like, oh yeah, Uh of course that's what it is. But when we see the stronger hurricanes or the bigger wildfires or the heavier downpours, maybe the intuitive connection is not there, which is why I think it's so much better to call it global weirding than global warming. Mm. Um, But Hot, dry days is what could change people's opinions long-term when you've lived through that and you're like, yeah, it definitely is getting warmer and it had a devastating impact on everything from my crops to my livestock to my health or my children to my home. It actually can change our minds. But the question is, is it going to change our minds fast enough? And sadly, I don't think the answer is yes. If we just wait like a frog in boiling water Mm -hmm. until we notice that the water is boiling, that is not a good strategy to avoid the worst of the impacts. What we need to do is we need to take notice wherever we live of what is happening now, what could happen in the future, which these new reports by Natural Resources Canada lay out very clearly. And we need to do everything we can to both prepare and adapt for the impacts we can no longer avoid today, as well as mitigating, reducing, cutting our carbon emissions as quickly as possible, restoring our natural ecosystems so that they can take up carbon instead of being sources of carbon, our forests. We need to invest in our resources, in our country, in people, in our uh, ecosystems, in our cities. 
we need to really invest in climate resilience, climate adaptation, and mitigation. Why? It is for every single one of us because the bottom line is to care about climate change. You don't have to be a certain type of person or vote a certain way or live in a certain place. You only have to be one thing, and that thing is a human living on planet Earth, and we are all that. Catherine, thank you so much for this. Uh, I guess it's also not a great week for Canada's greatest uh, political champion of fighting climate change to be stepping down. We need everyone to be a climate champion, and Catherine McKenna has carried the torch so long and so strongly. She is a remarkable example of strength and resilience to all of us. And it is time now, I think, for all of us to step up and pick up that torch. I hope we do. Thanks again. Thank you. Catherine Hayhoe, climate scientist and the author of Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. It comes out September 21st, and you can pre-order it right now. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find previous interviews with Catherine Hayhoe right there. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. If you are interested in the Twitter thread that Professor Hayhoe mentioned, you can find her at KHayhoe, K-H-A-Y-H-O-E. And of course, you can email The Big Story at TheBigStoryPodcast at rci.rogers.com. And you can find us in your favorite podcast players. Please remember to rate and review. We read every one. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Try to stay cool, and we'll talk tomorrow.